This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the CDC has issued new guidelines on how to safely reopen schools nationwide, and they do not include vaccinating teachers. While at the same time, Vice President Kamala Harris has been advocating for teachers to be bumped onto the priority list for the vaccine. We'll discuss how the New Orleans public schools are handling this. And a Tulane School of Medicine administrator has been suspended from her position as program director of the school's medicine pediatrics residency program and is suing the university for alleged discrimination. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On a cold podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Health reporter Philip Kiefer is here again. Hey, Philip. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, education is up first. Newly released CDC guidelines for reopening schools do not call for teachers to be vaccinated before returning to the classroom. However, in recent interviews, Vice President Kamala Harris has argued that teachers and other essential workers should move up on the vaccination priority list. Locally, city students have been back in the classroom since mid-September until rising case numbers called for a return to virtual learning. Elementary students returned February 1st. High school students are coming back into classrooms on Monday. When will teachers be able to receive the vaccine in Louisiana and who is making that decision? Even all the national politics aside, I think, you know, we saw the new CDC guidelines this week, much like guidelines that were released previously. There's not a whole lot of changes Although, you know, many schools in other parts of the country have not reopened the way New Orleans has. Just just like basically every other decision that's made in a school district, um, it, it's coming down to local authority as far as when teachers can get vaccines. Same as everything else that's coming down to local authority, that's coming down to the Louisiana Department of Health. At this point in time, teachers, general education teachers who wouldn't qualify another way, Um, from being, you know, older than 65 or working in a specialized um, therapy or counseling uh, position. You know, we don't exactly know when they're going to be eligible. I don't know, Philip, if you could speculate on that at all. Last I heard on um, this question of tiers, so we're in phase 1B tier 1 right now, and phase 1B tier 2 includes teachers, um, transit workers, other essential workers as designated by the state but that tier keeps getting pushed back and pushed back as of last week the state didn't have any estimate on when um when they would become eligible but dr jennifer avegno the new orleans city health director said that she expected that eligibility to come after the johnson and johnson single shot vaccine is approved which is expected to happen sometime this month we do know that about, you know, 22 other states have kind of bumped up teachers in some capacity. You know, similarly here, we also have, you know, counselors, school nurses, and other other types of educators who qualify in special ways. Have you had a chance to talk to any of the teachers unions or anything about how, they are, how they're feeling about all of this? I reached out to union representation this week, but I didn't hear back. Um, I, I suspect part of that is uh, just our general, you know, Mardi Gras holiday, and this is a this is a week off for schools this week. So, right. So yeah, after six weeks of school virtual return, the high school kids are coming back on Monday. Right after we just had some some version of Mardi Gras, all of that begs the question of of what are they are there 
concerns? What are they anticipating might happen after the return after Mardi Gras? I know district officials were pretty confident that we would be able to go back uh, to normal or, you know, what had been normal, which uh, would be elementary schoolers five days a week and they're back now. And then high schoolers on more of a hybrid schedule. So, you know, anywhere from one to three days in the classroom and other days at home. I know Superintendent Lewis was confident we would be able to return. He said, you know, we were able to do this at Thanksgiving. Um, I think the question is, did celebrations in any way resemble like they did over the winter break? Because that would raise concerns about potential, you know, spike in cases. Uh, But we don't have any evidence to suggest that so far. But at the same time, we had both a Mardi Gras holiday, I think, suppressing test results or people getting tested. And then additionally, we have this winter storm that has affected um, ability to test throughout the state. And potentially ability to vaccinate. Going back to the vaccinations for a second, Philip, we're on tier 1B right now. Is it? <laughs> we're, um, yeah, we're phase 1B tier 1, phase- which, I mean, honestly, the tiers are a little bit meaningless at this point because rather than um, progressing through them step by step like you would expect, what's happened is the governor's office and LDH have just added people to the existing tier. So we, we're still in phase 1B tier 1, but it was recently expanded to include people 65 and up. So at this point, I think I take all of the tears with um, a hefty spoonful of salt. But this is kind of their signaling, yeah, we're thinking that these people will come next, but there's nothing firm in there about what, what exactly that means in terms of progression. So it's really just semantics almost. Yeah. Okay, the list of people who are eligible for the vaccine keeps expanding. Are all those people who are eligible to receive the vaccine able to get vaccinated at this point? Uh, No, there's still delays in getting appointments set up. I mean, it is happening slowly but surely. But um, at this point, 1.2 million people are eligible for the vaccine roughly. and only about 500,000 first doses have been administered. Okay. That's less than half. Um, what the state has been saying is that they're aiming for roughly 80% of people who want the vaccine and are eligible to be vaccinated before moving to the next, the next tier or for, um, for demand to be about 80% of supply before opening to the next one. What we don't know are large-scale numbers there about hesitancy. I mean, that's, what, approximately 40% of people in the eligible categories. The, The challenge is that these early categories are people who, in general, have very compelling reasons to get vaccinated, right? They're frontline healthcare workers. They're um, over the age of 70 in a lot of cases. So I, I, yeah, that's what I would sort of take as my baseline, but I have a feeling that hesitancy in the existing categories is a lot lower. Although obviously I think the national number on nursing home hesitancy or nursing home staff hesitancy is around 50%. And last time I heard that was about, um, two weeks ago, that was about the number in Louisiana. Although, um, again, Joe Cantor said that they were, every time they were returning to nursing homes, 
uptake among staff was going up by about 10%. So Hmm. the the hesitancy numbers are also kind of a moving target as people see other people getting vaccinated. Hmm. Okay. Back to schools, Marta, has the vaccine tracker that they launched, that new vaccine tracker been dormant this last week or have they, has that been moving at all? No, so we're, we're not going to get any updates until Monday. And I think that's a little disappointing, you know, to me as a reporter, but also I think to the community, just because if we're going to potentially be in this tight spot that we were after a winter break, um, it'd be nice to have some new numbers this week before kids actually go back to the classroom. Did they say why they're not updating the case numbers this week? Is it just because of the holiday? I think the general party line would be something like, well, we update on Monday now and Monday was Lundy Gras, so. In a week or so, we'll, uh, I mean, even next week, you wouldn't expect it to, perhaps it'll reflect any new cases that have been diagnosed over the holiday break. Yeah, I mean, we, we're not going to see the full Mardi Gras effect if there is any for a couple weeks. Um, but, you know, you know, I think it would be it would be nice to know roughly what our baseline is as high school students are returning before we could expect, a, you know, a p- potential Mardi Gras spike. Right. We did have the district issued a, like a three line press release yesterday saying, you know, school starts on Monday, which is kind of the same thing they did last break. But that that release didn't include any numbers about positivity or anything related to COVID. It just it just said after the Mardi Gras holiday. Now, obviously, the city's the city's case tracker is still going, and in many ways, that you know has it provides more comprehensive information in a lot of ways. Though you know, it doesn't actually. It doesn't actually break out which cases are, are related to schools in some way, but it does It does give you better information in other ways. Right, and those those numbers have been trending in a good direction, but again, it's, it's a question of what is our testing capability been during this holiday. Yeah. Uh, the union representatives that you speak to, have you talked to them at all about their response to the advocacy on their behalf from Kamala Harris and the Biden administration that's in contradiction to the CDC guidelines? Yeah, we haven't spoken specifically about that. I think I think nationally there's obviously a big movement to get teachers vaccinated before returning to the classroom. And I, I think that's even more of a, it's a, a, I guess a tough or controversial subject in places where teachers, students had not returned to the classroom at all throughout this entire year. So right. here I think it is a little bit less of a sticking point because we've been we have been back in the classroom and also the union doesn't have a platform. They don't, you know, they don't have any, there are only a handful of collective bargaining contracts in the city. So it's, it's not the same type of conversation that would happen here. Um, but you know, the union would absolutely, I think, advocate for teachers to be vaccinated before they, they interact with students. Right. As far as the, the presidential party line, they, they, they did advocate for teachers to be vaccinated before returning to the classroom, but they also, you know, acknowledged that that's not part of the CDC guidelines. So yeah, it's a, pretty interesting. Interesting stance. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And in terms of CDC recommendations, I mean, the CDC's stance at the moment and has been that transmissions can be effectively controlled inside classrooms, right? Right. If you're if you're using a mask, if you're distanced, um, and I, I think our schools are pretty well set up to do that. Generally speaking, especially when thirty to forty percent of the population was still staying at home, so there was more room in classrooms than a typical sized classroom. Right. Good point. All right. Thanks, Marta. Thank you.
And an update on this story, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards announced on Thursday that teachers will be added to the eligibility list for the vaccine beginning next week. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, health reporter Philip Kiefer, and the Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Philip, a Tulane School of Medicine administrator has been demoted from her position last week. She says the move was in retaliation for a discrimination lawsuit she's filed against the university. Who is she? What's her background? What's going on here? So her name is Dr. Princess Dinar. She was an administrator overseeing a residency program within the Tulane School of Medicine. Just by way of background, she was hired in 2008 as the medical director for a separate program within the med school. Within a year, so by 2009, she was hired to be the co-program director of the medicine pediatrics residency at the Tulane School of Medicine, which means she was overseeing residents, people who graduated from medical school but still need to go through this process of getting hands-on experience before completing their um their education um and pretty soon after that uh she became the full program director she was the first black woman program director at the tulane school of medicine and importantly the program that she was leading medicine pediatrics or med peds became substantially less white than other residencies according to her lawsuit it became more diverse under her leadership which becomes sort of a key part of the discrimination lawsuit just a, a couple things first of all is that she is still employed by the school of medicine right this was kind of a demotion she received last week Exactly, yeah. And the second thing is that this lawsuit that she filed was filed well in advance of this demotion. It was filed back in October. What was the sort of genesis of that suit? Yeah, lawsuit filed October of 2020 um, alleges racial and gender discrimination. I mean, the allegations in the suit start basically from within a year of her initial hiring as the medical director for this other program. While she was in that first year, she alleges that during the interview process with the dean of the School of Medicine, Dr. Lee Hamm, Hamm told her that essentially the program, MedPeds, would suffer in the eyes of applicants. Applicants wouldn't want to come there um, if it had a black director. And so that's why she was given the job of co-director originally before being promoted to a full directorship. From there, there's a ton of other stuff um, alleged that she says created a hostile and discriminatory climate against both her and 
the residents she oversaw and against her program in general. So some of those elements are, she alleges that she was locked out of key internal software that she needed to oversee her residents and be able to schedule them for um, for rotations, that she was locked out of school-wide listservs or um, other sort of key communication platforms. The lawsuit says that her students were prevented from taking shifts that they would need to gain elective experience and that the same was not happening to residents in other programs. And I think importantly, it also alleges that um, she was forced to use a software for ranking applicants to her program that specifically discounted the education of students from HBCUs. Her lawsuit is alleging that the software, if they graduated from an HBCU, it knocked them down in the ranking. That is my understanding. My understanding is that there was this software program called Atlas that's used for, on some level, automatically ranking applicants to the program. There's this, in the residency application process, there's this matching system. And initial offers are made on the basis of mutual high rankings. And so an element of the ranking process for the MedPeds program, allegedly, was this software that ranked applicants and specifically discounted, gave lower ranks to applicants from HBCUs. Will you explain the other two lawsuits against the university? There are two other lawsuits alleging gender and racial discrimination against the School of Medicine or high-level faculty in the School of Medicine right now that I know of. One of them is very closely related to Dr. Dinar's lawsuit. It's actually a resident in the MedPeds program, um, Dr. Okeke, who in February of 2020, and this went unreported at the time, um, sued the School of Medicine and named another high-level administrator who's who's named in Dr. Dinar's suit, basically over some of the allegations that Dr. Dinar um, makes in her lawsuit regarding uh, students being given harder rotations, students in residence in MedPeds being given harder rotations, not being given elective rotations. And this student specifically alleges that she was given, I believe, a year without any vacation time, which was given to um, to other residents. And actually, Dr. Dinar served as a witness in this resident's suit. And Dr. Dinar's lawsuit alleges that the retaliation became more intense after after that went forward. The other one is related only in broad themes. It's a suit filed um, by a, uh, a rheumatology researcher who studied um, autoimmune disorders, is my understanding. And it's it names, again, the dean of the School of Medicine, Dr. Lee Ham, and another high-level administrator. This suit was filed in 2019 after the researcher was um, let go and basically alleges that that was based on the fact that she was 
a woman who had been discriminated against on the basis of gender throughout her research. It alleges that um, her research funding was sapped by this administrator and given to other male researchers around her, and that she was then terminated because she had been unable to secure funding and do her research effectively, which the lawsuit then says stemmed back from the fact that she was being undermined the entire time through her research. But that suit feels um, like important context because it also names the dean of the School of Medicine. It says that this researcher went to him with her concerns that the dean said that he would investigate and then did not, that he knew about the allegations and didn't do anything. So what's the university's position? The university's position is that they are committed to fostering an equitable and inclusive community and discrimination in any form has no place and is not tolerated. What they say about this suspension is that an external review body, the ACGME, came to Tulane to review the MedPeds program and issued a warning status, it's called, about the status of the program. They say that this status change triggered an automatic review of the program by an internal body called the Graduate Medical Education Committee, which is comprised of diverse Tulane faculty and medical residents and individuals from other institutions. They then say that that committee recommended the suspension of Dr. Dinar. Where this gets really confusing and hard to parse out is that review by the outside body, the ACGME, according to Dr. Dinar's lawsuit, came to evaluate the program because of allegations from her residents of racial discrimination on the part of the administration. So her lawsuit essentially says, yes, my residents brought in this outside body, which the school then says led to the review of her. There's some contention over what exactly the ACGME found when they went there. Um, The lawsuit says essentially that it could not rule out discrimination as contributing to the warning status of the program. A spokesperson for um, the school sent me an email saying that no, in fact, they couldn't substantiate claims of racism. I'm waiting for more to come out of this lawsuit before I know exactly what what they said. Um, that's still not public to my knowledge. But what's extra strange about this, so you have this outside body come in, apparently at the behest of students who said they were experiencing racism, this automatic review happens The automatic review appears to have been under the purview of one of the high-level administrators named as an antagonist in Dr. Dinar's lawsuit, and I haven't gotten any answer on what his involvement was in that, but one of the people named in the lawsuit was the Dean of Graduate Medical Education. In the lawsuit, it says that he oversees... um, internal education standards of residents. And then the statement from Tulane says that Dr. Dinar's suspension was handed down by a committee within the graduate medical education division. I don't know what to make of that. 
I should say that the case with the researcher who alleged gender discrimination in her firing, that had a summary judgment issued in favor of Tulane on December 31st, but it's in appeal right now, and um, briefs are being filed to the Fifth Circuit Court in March. Are they the same? Are they represented by the same attorney? There are a couple different attorneys and I haven't managed to get one of them on the phone, but yeah, this one guy, um, Mickey always is involved in teams of all three. And he's definitely the, the lead attorney for OKK and Dinar. And I think is one of several for the researcher who's Sakeku. Any other fallout yet from this? A group of Tulane alumni is writing an open letter about uh, about the lack of transparency that they think is happening as part of this lawsuit. Um, there's a student group that has popped up calling themselves SLAM that also has demands. I mean, it's it's definitely causing a huge amount of turmoil within the School of Medicine. Yeah. Well, Philip, it's a big messy story and you'll keep your eye on it sure we'll talk more about it okay in full disclosure my husband is a practicing physician and educator at the tulane university school of medicine thanks for your time thank you this is behind the lens a podcast from the lens new orleans first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom i'm carolyn heldman thanks to our guest this week marta jusen Philip Kiefer, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.